Uh, thanks. So um, I'm, I'll confess that I'm one of the people who, uh, who has worked in this area who started, starts papers by saying, well, I'm interested in predicates of taste. What do I mean by that? I don't really know. Um, it may be something that includes beautiful, but I sure don't want to talk about that because it's really stressful. So here's a paper about tasty. Um, and I've done that several times. Um, but one of the reasons I was really excited about this workshop is it was a cause to think a little bit more about the broader range. Um, and so I started thinking, um, 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 setting aside the kinds of worries that uh, Aaron and Sam mentioned, I started thinking about the broader class of uh, relative gradable adjectives, of which many of these terms do seem to be some part. Uh, and without, without assuming pre-theoretically that there's a natural class here, I started thinking about um, the kinds of fault lines that you might find among the category that includes tasty uh, and beautiful and sentimental and tall. Uh, and it struck me that there are, there are three kinds of distinctions here that, that are interesting to me philosophically uh, that I thought it would be nice to have something to say about. So uh, first, of course, there's a distinction between um, the words that are uh, evaluative and the ones that are non-evaluative. Um, there's another distinction uh, that I talk about in another paper um, between um, expressions that seem quite clearly to be expressions of personal preference. These are words like tasty, the other ones that go by the term uh, predicates of personal taste in that literature, tasty, fun, maybe boring, um, and expressions that seem different from that. Um, now, whatever, like, whatever your metanormative view in the end, like you know, whatever you think you know, beauty amounts to or our claims about beauty, uh, there does seem to be a difference between tasty on the one hand, where we're pretty comfortable thinking what you're really saying there is something about yourself, I think. Um, and words like uh, beautiful and sentimental and, of course, tall, where at least superficially it seems like um, we're trying to make a claim about the object itself. Um, and then finally there's this uh, distinction between um, terms that pick out uh, substantive aesthetic qualities like sentimental and unified and bombastic and chaotic uh, and terms that uh, are used in expressions of judgments of aesthetic merit, uh, uh, maybe like beautiful, uh, maybe beautiful can be used in both ways, mediocre, uh, words like that. Um, my initial philosophical inclination is to think that all of these distinctions are matters of degree uh, and that, um, that all of these things should be explained ultimately in a way that lets you see this as a kind of spectrum uh, in each case. Um, for the evaluative versus non-evaluative ones, I have some lovely quotes from Hare that I can read. I've read them in other talks uh, where he points out that almost any word can be used as a value word and even, even the paradigmatically uh, evaluative words that seem to carry no uh, evaluative content, in fact, on an occasion of use, carry all kinds of descriptive content. So if I tell you it's a good car, and it turns out that the car um, goes through a quart of oil every half hour, then you're going to feel misled. Right? That makes me think that you don't want to hard code the distinction between evaluative and non-evaluative into the semantics of this kind of term. Um, so the question then is, can you get an explanation for these things um, in such a way that lets you not see them as categorical differences. Um, and there's a kind of view um, that I like that's related to this um, that has to do with something called metalinguistic negotiation, which I'll talk about in just a sec, uh, that I think actually lets you go quite a long ways towards doing this with a semantic theory that's, that's quite simple, that really is nothing over and above a kind of off-the-shelf semantics for great, relative gradable adjectives. So uh, that's the thought. So let me say a little bit about that view. So there's, there's this work that I started uh, kind of in my dissertation and in a couple other papers and uh, have continued in three co-authored papers with David Plunkett um, 
where we talk about uh, what we call metalinguistic negotiation. Here's the idea with that. Um, so we start with this notion that uh, Chris Barker introduces in 2002, although um, in the language of morals, Hare describes it perfectly, um, uh, called a metalinguistic usage of a term or a sharpening use of a term. So here's an example of a metalinguistic uh, usage of a term. So Arctic Research Station. So Alfie has just arrived at the research station and he's run into the hut from the, from the helicopter and he's standing there shivering, looking at the thermometer and he says to his new coworker Betty, is this cold? And she says, nope, I'm afraid this isn't cold, right? And the thought here is Betty has not shared with Alfie new information about the temperature. They both know what the temperature is, right? What she's done is she's uh, provided him with some information that is in the first instance uh, about language. She's told him what the threshold for coldness is around here, right? So um, the thought there is that when you've got a word which is in some way underspecified, maybe because it's polysemous or it's context sensitive in a certain way, if you hold the meaning constant, then you can use that word to express information about the world. But that things can work in the other direction too. If you can hold the facts about the world constant, then a usage of that word can express facts about its meaning. Right? And sometimes that's exactly what we want to know about. Uh, and that's what's going on in uh, example one. Now, um, just as you can express information about that kind of stuff, you can have arguments about that kind of stuff. So another coworker in the Arctic Research Station could come along and say, no, this isn't, no, this is cold, actually, even for Antarctica. And they could have a big debate about it. And what they'd be debating are facts about where the threshold is. Again, they all know what the temperature is. Um, that kind of debate, a debate that uh, is carried out using competing metalinguistic uses of a term. That's what Plunkett and I call a metalinguistic dispute. Um, now, some metalinguistic disputes um, are like the one in Arctic Research Station, where it's plausible to think that there's some antecedently fairly determinate fact of the matter about where that threshold is. But not all metalinguistic disputes are like that. So contrast uh, that kind of dispute with the one in office thermostat. So now suppose that Alfie and Betty are co-workers in an office in Chicago, and they're standing around the thermostat. And uh, Alfie, shivering, says, it's cold in here. And Betty says, no, it's not cold in here. Right? Now, I think intuitively, it's much less plausible to think that in this case, there's some antecedently settled fact of the matter about where the threshold for coldness is here. I think what they're doing is having a negotiation about where that threshold should be. Right? What they're doing is trying to figure out where they should put it. Now, why would they have a debate about a linguistic fact like this? Well because arguing about how to use the word cold in an office setting when you're having an argument about climate control is one way of having an argument about whether to turn up the heat, right? The word cold plays a certain functional role in our discourse about climate control. Um, one way to put it is that if everybody can agree that the word cold applies to the temperature here, then you're probably gonna turn up the heat. That's nothing analytic about the word cold, right? It's a fact about the functional role that it plays in our climate control practices. Um, so that kind of metalinguistic dispute, one where there is no antecedently determinate fact of the matter, but what you're doing is negotiating the proper deployment of some linguistic expression, that's what Plunkett and I call metalinguistic negotiation. So metalinguistic negotiation is a type of metalinguistic dispute. It's one where you're settling the question, not arguing about some antecedently determinate answer. Okay. Um, now, there are two things uh, that I think are important to note about metalinguistic negotiations. Um, the first is that um, the role that the term plays in the, in the setting where the negotiation takes place places very tight constraints on the kinds of 
threshold settings or polysemy resolutions or what have you that people are going to tend to argue for. So for example, in an office setting, you're almost never going to have someone advocating for a threshold for coldness of 24 degrees Celsius. I have no idea what 24 degrees Celsius means, but I plugged it into a thing, and I think that's the point I want to make. Um, um, but the fact that you're never going to find someone uh, arguing that we should use the word cold with a threshold of 24 degrees Celsius, um, that's not a semantic fact about cold. That's a fact about um, what we do with the word in this kind of setting. Right? Um, the other thing to note is that although this negotiation is in the first instance a negotiation about language and thought, uh, that doesn't mean that it's a matter of mere stipulation or definition or that these people are just trying to get so that they talk more like each other. Right? There are stakes here. Right? And in particular, uh, if it's an argument about climate control, given what it is that you're up to, right, trying to be comfortable at work, trying to figure out what to do with the thermostat, and given the facts on the ground about what people are like, um, some settings are going to be better or worse than others. Right? Um, so just because this is a negotiation that is in the first instance about language doesn't mean you've committed, you're committed now to the claim that all bets are off, or it's merely a kind of coordination for its own sake. Right? Um, these things can be evaluated with respect to kind of external factors, and in fact, just exactly the factors that you thought were at stake in the first place. It's an argument about what temperature it should be in here so we can work comfortably. Um, now, the example of, of a metalinguistic negotiation in, uh, in two uh, is a case where you've got a relative gradable adjective and you're negotiating where to put the threshold. Um, but not all negotiations, even metalinguistic negotiations involving relative gradable adjectives are like that. So in his 2006, Chris Kennedy distinguishes between, on the one hand, vagueness. So even if you set the threshold, it's vague um, you know, where it is, or it's vague what counts. Um, and of course, you have to set the threshold in the first place. But there's also indeterminacy. And adjectives vary in how determinate or indeterminate the scale is that the threshold appears on. So for example, tall is almost always going to be uh, along a scale of height. Expensive is almost always going to be on a scale of cost. Rich is almost always going to be on a scale of wealth. But not all words are like that. So take happy or clever or significant. Um, the example Kennedy uses is large when he, his example is about cities. And you could have one use of the word large for a city where it has to do with geographical space and another use of the word large where the scale is population size. Right. Now that, he says, is a kind of polysemy, and that's what he calls indeterminacy. So these words have both vagueness and indeterminacy, and both of those things, being types of underdetermination, can be the targets of a metalinguistic negotiation. So in car show, you have people having a metalinguistic negotiation um, about how to use the word large, but it's not a negotiation of threshold, it's a negotiation of scale. So Alfie says, the person with the largest car gets to head the steering committee. That's Betty in her Humvee, so she's in charge. Uh, and Betty says, oh, this is Betty. Whoops, I shouldn't have used Betty. Speaker B says, no, Betty's car may be the heaviest, but Randall Suburban takes up more space, so he should be in charge. Right? So here what they're negotiating is how to use the word large, but not where the threshold of largeness should be on the scale, but what the scale itself should be like. So um, the question now is how you might take... Um, so I think, I think this kind of phenomenon is independently motivated, and if you want to really punish yourself, you can read the super long paper I wrote, David Plunkett, about why you should think that this stuff happens all over the place. If you think it happens all over the place, then you'll want to put it to use 
in an area like thinking about predicates of taste before you start postulating very fancy new semantic theories. Um, so if you think this stuff is going on anyway, start simple and see how much you can do. Uh, so with that in mind, consider an extremely simple kind of semantic view for a word like tasty, um, one that is so simple it doesn't even have a, a, a spot for something like an experience or a standard. You've really just got a scale and a threshold. Well, what's the scale for a word like tasty going to be like? Please don't say it's a scale of tastiness. Tons of people actually say that in print. I don't think they should. Um, the scale for tall is not tallness, it's height. The scale for cost is not costiness. It's <laughs> Sorry, the scale for expensive is not expensiveness, it's cost. Um, so, well, I don't know. Like, what if we say something like this? Um, the scale is something like proximity to some type of flavor profile, right? So how close does it get to tasting like this? What's this? Well, most of the time, this is going to be what you think it should taste like, but that's not in the semantics. It's just how close does it get to tasting like that? Right. Well, if that's your kind of view, then um, as with the other gradables, then you can sometimes have people who agree on what that target taste is like and argue about how close you have to get. Other times you're going to have people who don't even agree on where the target taste should be. Uh, and then sometimes you'll have people who agree on both and can have uh, discussions that are not even in the first instance about language, that are just purely about the world. So here are three cases. Imagine Alfie and Betty are both... Um, they own a bakery together, and some cupcakes have come out of the oven. And uh, Alfie looks over at some cupcakes on the table, and he says, these cupcakes are tasty. And Betty says, no, no, you're thinking of the ones in the other room. These ones are made of wax. Right? Well, here the thought is that Alfie and Betty can agree completely. It can be fully determined by this point already what the target taste is. And they can also agree on the threshold. They just disagree about whether those cupcakes on the table satisfy that, because Alfie thinks that they're the ones that just came out of the oven, and Betty thinks that they're the fake cupcakes that go in the, whatever, in the counter, in the display for the customers. Now consider a different kind of argument. Um, the cupcakes come out of the oven. They both taste them. And Alfie says, these cupcakes are tasty. And Betty replies, no, they're passable, but not tasty. These are for our very best clients, and I think we can do better. Here, I think the natural thought is that Alfie and Betty agree on what the good-making features of a cupcake are. They agree on what you're aiming for with the taste of a cupcake, but they disagree about whether these cupcakes get close enough. right? Because the clients are so important, you want to get the cupcakes to get very close to that. And so the use of tasty that's going to matter for you is the one that applies only to cupcakes that are quite, quite close to the target flavor profile. Right? Finally, imagine um, the dialogue in Cupcake 3. The cupcakes come out of the oven. They both taste them. Alfie says these cupcakes are tasty, and Betty says, no, they're passable, but they're not tasty. Of course, they're perfectly sugary and fluffy, but they're boring. Let's add a subtle hint of smokiness. Right? Well, here, so forget your own independently motivated views about cupcakes. Um, <laughs> here the thought is that the question of threshold is moot. Right? What Alfie and Betty are really trying to do is um, fix on a scale um, for tastiness, and uh, what they're disagreeing about is uh, what the good-making features of a cupcake are. And so arguing about how to use the word cupcake, and in particular arguing about what the scale should be like, not the threshold, is one way of having an argument about what the good-making features of a cupcake are. Um, now, a couple points, and these are the same points that I made before about office thermostat. Um, the functional role that Tasty is playing in these different dialogues tightly constrains the kinds of scales and the kinds of thresholds that people will argue for. And in particular, it will fix those things very closely um, to our preferences and our desires and our coordinated action and what kinds of things we think taste good. Right? 
But you don't have to put that in the semantics. You don't have to, for example, de describe in your like lexical entry that the target taste profile is appealing or something. Because just given what Alfie and Betty are up to in these negotiations, why argue for a target flavor profile unless there's something special about it? And in particular, it's the kind of flavor profile that you're aiming for. right? Um, but just like the temperature didn't have to be written into the word cold, you don't have to write the fact that the target temperature is good into the semantics for tasty. The other thing to note is that just like in the case of office thermostat, um, the fact that these things are in the first instance negotiations about language or thought doesn't mean that's all there is to it. Right? So I think, and I'm going to say a little bit more about this, that it's very plausible, independently plausible, to think that a lot of what's going on in aesthetic um, debate is a kind of coordination on standards where involved speakers trying to get more similar in the way that they think about things or in their own preferences or reactions. But none of this is to say that that's all that's going on because the standards themselves can be evaluated with respect to the stuff that matters given what they're up, given what they're up to. Right? So if Alfie and Betty, for example, were to sync up on a scale for tastiness according to which a cupcake made out of mud counted as tasty, well, they might, on this view, go around expressing true propositions when they say things like, this cupcake is tasty, right? But they're still stupid for doing that. Uh, and they still have, in a completely robust sense, made a mistake. They've synced up on a bad standard, given what they're up to. Okay. So um, this is the kind of view that, uh, that I like um, for the kinds of simple predicates of personal taste that get talked a lot about in this literature. Uh, and now the question is, um, does this extend to the kinds of adjectives that we're talking about here? Uh, and I think, I think, I think it does. Um, so, like I said, part of the thought here is that part of what's going on when we argue about taste, or when we argue about aesthetic merit, or when we argue about aesthetic qualities, is that we're trying to coordinate our standards. We're trying to align. Um, our own preferences and the way that we look at things. This is not a thought that has never come up before. So, for example, Tamina Stevenson says uh, participants in a conversation about matters of taste are trying to align their worldviews, not only with regard to factual beliefs, such as whether Bill works on Fridays, but also with regard to subjective matters of taste, subjective matters such as what is tasty. Andy Egan says, I propose that we should think of this effect of successful aesthetic assertions and successful resolutions of aesthetic disputes of inducing mutual self-attribution of certain dispositions to have a particular sort of response to a particular kind of object as the central business of assertions and disputes about taste and not as a mere side effect. That's a really hard sentence to parse. Um, but I think he's kind of right. Um, so I like this thought that people like Tamina and Andy have suggested, um, but I don't like their way of implementing the thought. One reason I don't like it is that I think if you can do the same work, if you can capture that same thought about what's going on in these kinds of disputes without having to introduce centered worlds or uh, you know, assessment-sensitive stuff or whatever, then yeah, do it that way. So that's just a kind of parsimony claim. Um, but the other thing is that um, Andy and Tamina both talk very specifically about people aligning uh, their subjective attitudes. Um, but I think, at least intuitively, well, that makes sense for words like tasty and fun and maybe boring, stuff like that. Um, it would be nice if the account um, extended to words like sentimental or bombastic or beautiful. Right? Um, and I think it's easier to capture that if you think of these things in the way that I'm thinking of them. One thing to note is that if the thought is that some of these things seem like they're kind of negotiations of standards, 
Well, this view implements that thought by saying these things are negotiations of standards. Right? So it just directly implements this thought. Um, but without committing us to the, you know, the thought that that's the only thing that's going on. So um, as I said, given the background conditions, given what people are up to when they're negotiating, the standards themselves can be evaluated. So depending on what you're up to, you can think of these standards as better or worse. And basically, almost any kind of metanormative view about what aesthetic value is like or what normativity is like can be accommodated on this kind of semantic view, because you can have all kinds of different reasons for advocating a particular standard. So if you're having an argument about whether something is tasty, you can advocate a particular standard because it corresponds to what you like, or you can advocate it because it corresponds to what you think you would like, post-idealization, or you can advocate it because it corresponds to what the most educated and privileged in society like. You can advocate it because it corresponds to the metaphysically fundamental aesthetic joints in nature, if you go for that kind of thing, which I actually think I kind of do, but whatever. Right? Whatever your view here, any of those things are the kinds of things that can matter in a conversation, and so they're, they're the kinds of things with respect to which you can evaluate the standards themselves, and with respect to which you can make sense of someone being mistaken even if on this view the proposition that they literally express is true, given what they mean by the word. Um, that, I think, is an advantage of this over um, Andy and Tamina's way of doing this. Um, and I think it should make sense, because this kind of negotiation is not just something that happens intuitively in arguments about tastiness, but in fact it's totally continuous with the negotiation about cold. And so it would be weird if it turned out that it was only about purely subjective matters we have this kind of negotiation, because we have it about whether things are cold or whether someone's tall, et cetera. Um, finally, um, one of the things that I think is really striking about um, disagreements in this domain, um, this is stuff that normally gets talked about under the heading faultless disagreement, but I'm not totally in love with that way of thinking about it. Um, but the idea is, is this. I mean, so faultless disagreements are supposed to be these cases where people disagree about whether Vegemite is tasty, they really disagree, but neither one is mistaken, so they feel like they're at odds in a certain sense, but they don't want to necessarily attribute a mistake to each other. Um, but I think there's this worry, which is that disagreements purely about taste can be highly faulty. Uh, if you get in a disagreement with someone about whether they like Vegemite, it could be, and it happens sometimes, that that disagreement is serious and heated and persistent, and that you draw on all kinds of specific non, you know, features of the Vegemite in trying to convince the person that they're crazy. Right? And I think also the disagreements involving um, the most objective-seeming kinds of aesthetic terms, like whether something is um, chaotic rather than dynamic, or whether something is beautiful, those things can often just, that disagreement there can kind of vanish with reference to personal tastes or personal standards. right? So in the same way that I can think you're absolutely nuts for liking Vegemite, and we can argue about it for hours, if you say the painting is dynamic, I can say, well, I see why you say that, but to me it's chaotic. Okay, fair enough. Right? That conversation is super boring, and you shouldn't have conversations like that, but it's not bizarre. It doesn't seem confused or semantically incompetent. Right? And so I think um, what you want to aim for in an account of the kind of disagreement that happens in this domain is not um, itself a thing where it's either present or it's not present. The feeling of being at odds is something that comes and goes over the course of a conversation. It gets entrenched in places where it shouldn't, and it vanishes in places where you think it should stick around. And I think the kind of conflict that you associate with a negotiation is like that. Uh, when you're negotiating with someone, depending on the stakes, sometimes you'll dig in your heels, sometimes you won't. Depending on the background, sometimes it will seem very important, and sometimes it won't. 
Sometimes you'll be mad at them just because they're different than you. Other times you like won't care at all, even though you seem to have very different views about the world. So I think the idea of seeing these kinds of um, debates as a negotiation of standards uh, is a much more natural way of capturing the ways in which we feel at odds with each other when we argue about uh, taste or aesthetic merit or aesthetic qualities. Um, so that's the view. The thought is that um, many or most of our uh, disagreements in this domain are expressed via tacit negotiations over how best to use the relevant <coughs> linguistic terminology. That's not just a matter of negotiating language, given the stakes that these things have. Language plays a certain functional role in our debates about these things, and so non-linguistic matters are at stake in our decisions about how to use the linguistic expressions. Um, this is true for um, claims about personal taste. It's true for claims about uh, aesthetics. It's true for claims that have nothing to do with either of those things, like coldness. Um, I think this does kind of provide the resources to make sense of the distinctions that I opened with and in the way that I wanted to make sense of them, which is a way that doesn't kind of hard code these differences into the semantics of the relevant terms. So um, if you look at um, terms that are evaluative versus terms that are non-evaluative, well again, um, Hart points out that almost anything can be used evaluatively, and even the evaluative ones often carry descriptive content. Well, uh, on this kind of view, whether something is evaluative or not is a feature of a use of the term, not of the term itself. There's no evaluation built into the semantics. But if part of what leads you to advocate for one standard over another is that you like the object, well, then that's an evaluative use of the term. right? What, part of what matters is your pro-attitudes towards the object. And if that's part of what enters into your decisions about what scales or thresholds or what have you to, to argue for, then that uses evaluative. Um, as for whether the term seems like an expression of mere personal preference or um, whether it has objective purport, um, whether it's trying to say something about the object, well, think back to cold. Um, different terms, given what we do with them, lend themselves to different kinds of scales or thresholds being advocated for them. A term like tasty, given what we do with it, we argue about tasty in situations where we're trying to decide which kinds of cookies to buy, or we're deciding what to order at a restaurant, or we're just trying to suss out whether we're similar or different to each other, gustatorily. These situations are situations where the stakes are fairly low and where we assume a lot of interpersonal variation. So a word like tasty is going to lend itself to standards that correspond to the likes or dislikes of individuals or of tightly tightly um, conscribed groups. Right? Now, a term like beautiful, what's at stake in our arguments about what's beautiful? I have no idea. Okay, um, But it certainly seems like things that might be um, higher stakes when we argue about whether something's beautiful, we're trying to decide whether the person has good taste in general, whether they're educated, people who actually know aesthetics can fill in more stuff here. But And it's not, of course, all just kind of sociological either. We might think that what we're trying to get at is, is real properties of the object that matter for its ability to give us a particular kind of pleasure, whatever. Um, those things are higher stakes, and they're also uh, in a domain where we, for better or worse, assume a lower degree of interpersonal variation. And so a word like beautiful is going to lend itself to having standards advocated for it that are expansive, that correspond to larger groups of individuals or idealized individuals or what have you. Um, Finally, uh, the distinction between um, substantive and verdictive uh, adjectives. This is basically, uh, well, if it's not the distinction between thin and thick terms, it's closely related to the distinction between thin and thick terms, I think. And here, I think at least part of what's going on is that one of the ways that these words vary 
um, and you can see it in the distinction between tasty and sentimental, is they vary in just how much uh, context-invariant descriptive content is built into the term. So there's a variation in just how underdetermined they are. Um, if a term has a whole bunch of descriptive content, context insensitive descriptive content built into it, then of course that term is going to be um, more focused on talking about properties of the object, right? So if something is bombastic, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not really going to vary context to context or that's going to constrain the kind of scale that you end up uh, advocating for. You don't want to advocate for a scale of bombast that has to do with being like quiet and gentle. That's not what the term means, right? Um, now, of course, given the setting, it might have some evaluative content also if part of the reason you prefer this way of using bombastic to this way of using bombastic has to do with whether you think it's worthy of a certain kind of steam or whatever, right? There'll still be some wiggle room there, um, but the kind of substantive words are the ones that have a lot of context and variance and content built in, whereas a word like tasty uh, is unusual uh, in just how little uh, is built in um, antecedently about what the scale has to be like. That makes it very different from a word like sentimental or bombastic, but that's what makes it so perfectly suited to being a kind of general blanket term for positive gustatory verdicts. Right? And so the thin terms are going to be just those terms that semantically work just like the others, but don't have as much semantic content built in. Let me just note one thing about that. A, a, lot, of, um, a lot of the way that the literature works, and this is what I open by confessing, starts by saying, OK, what's our semantic theory for tasty going to be like? And let's hope maybe it'll extend to beautiful. Right? Who knows? I don't want to be the one to ask. Um, on this view, actually, tasty is the special case. Right? Um, it's the substantive words um, where, uh, where you say, look, these words are just descriptive. They're just saying stuff about um, the object. Uh, and then we negotiate just how to use it in ways that have to do with, what, with whether we like it or not, that kind of thing. Tasty is the special case in virtue of being so highly indeterminate in the scale. And so this does things in exactly the reverse direction. But if it's plausible for tasty, if you liked the stuff about cupcakes, then you'll definitely like this kind of view for something like uh, sentimental or bombastic. Um, because on this view, basically, tasty really is, uh, to say that something's tasty really is to say something about what it tastes like, um, not it appealing to somebody or anything like that. So all of them are descriptive, but uh, the rest of it, I think, flows very naturally from this account of um, what we do with them. That comes out of the pragmatics and about our negotiations about how to use them. Okay, so that's the view. I think I'll stop there.